Number one, we want to learn, of course, what is God through Amos speaking about, correct? I mean, it's obvious. We want to learn about what he's saying, and we're going to try to work our way through chapters, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 17 this morning, so you can understand that. There's something else going on here that I think is going to be a really valuable exercise that we're going to, we're going to handle right in the middle of it all. Um, there is a lot of Hebrew poetry, as it were, in the Old Testament. The Psalms, for example, is all Hebrew poetry, isn't it? Uh, you find uh, there are sections of a variety of other books. Song of Solomon is Hebrew poetry. Uh, there's a little bit of poetry in Ecclesiastes, a lot of poetry in he- Ecclesiastes. Um, you find some poetry, some, not much, but some in, in, um, in the book of Proverbs. You find a lot of poetry in the book of Job. Uh, you find interspersed poetry elsewhere throughout the Old Testament. There's poetry that, for some reason, the Hebrew writers loved using poetry. And, obviously, the some reason is God intended them to use poetry. But it's bigger than just God intended them to use poetry. Hebrew poetry serves a purpose of communication. It communicates in a different way than how we would normally communicate. Different genres communicate differently. So in a very real way, what we're going to talk about this morning is not just what the text actually says we're going to, but we're also going to talk a little bit about some ways of interpreting poetry, Hebrew poetry. Because Hebrew poetry is radically different from what we know of as poetry. When we think about poetry today, oftentimes we think of what? Rhyming. Not always, right Tom? What's that? A lot of bad poetry rhymes, you're absolutely correct. And a, and a lot of good poetry doesn't rhyme. But, but in Hebrew poetry, rhyming is irrelevant. It's more about structure. It's more about location than anything else. There's other, other aspects to it as well. But interestingly enough, in Hebrew poetry, one of the major purposes for Hebrew poetry is to identify the main theme. To focus the reader, the hearer, on the main theme. And everything else points to that main theme. And there's a variety of structures that are used in Hebrew poetry, but one of the common ones is called a chiastic structure. I know that for most of you have probably never heard of that term. It's okay. For most, a lot of times, the Hebrew writers would use what's called a chiastic structure of poetry, and the purpose for it is to point the reader, and if if you had, had, were a Hebrew person, you'd know this, and you would know right away exactly what the point, what the primary point is of the entire poem because of the, of the structure. Interestingly enough, oftentimes when we read the poetry of the Old Testament in English, we miss it. Oftentimes we will grab all the wrong things and miss the central focus. It's really important that we don't do that. Let me give you an example. The story of Rahab. We all know the story of Rahab, right? If you remember the story of Rahab, as English people, English Christians, American Christians, the typical things we think of with the story of Rahab is what? Typically. Help me out. Typically. She hid the two spies, right? What else? She showed faith and the rest of Jericho didn't. Okay, she showed faith and the rest of Jericho didn't. Good, what else? She lied about it. She lied, right? She lied. She was a 
prostitute. Can't miss that. She was a prostitute who lived on the she wall. She was a prostitute. She lived on the wall. We know all these different things about it. But you know what the story of Rahab's about? The whole story of Rahab is about the word loving kindness. And it combines with her confession, your God is the true God. That's it. That's the whole story. Everything else is just color. I don't know about you. When I grew up as a child, hearing about the story of Rahab, I heard all about the color. And I never heard about the, the purpose, the real purpose. In the sentence structure, I mean, sorry, in the Hebrew, Hebrew poetry structure, you discover it's very clear. It's a chiastic structure. It's very clear. I know that your God is the true God. Now show me chesev. Show me covenant loyalty. That's the point. It's a stunning point of the book of, of, of the story of Rahab. And we miss that in our English. And it's sad to our detriment that we miss it. And so as a result, we get caught up in all sorts of other things. And in this chapter today, that's exactly what we're going to fight to do, not do so that we get caught up in the right thing, not the wrong things. Secondly, and lastly, actually thirdly, because we said we want to know what the book says, what the chapter says, we want to see the structure. And lastly, there's interesting, I'm not going to cover all of them, there's a whole lot of plays on words here that are very intriguing. And it's very important that we see them. And, and as we see them, hopefully it will bring it out even more strong. It's, it's not, the way I would describe it, all the different plays on words are like bringing color to the story. It's like watching TV in black and white, and then when you see the plays on words, it brings color to it. It's the same picture, but it brings much more power, much more color to the story. We're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Let's read the text first, and then we'll walk our way through it. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. And do not cross over into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made Pleiades and Orion and turns, into, turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that the so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves at the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stones, but you shall not dwell in them. 
You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. For it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good. And establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And all, in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Interesting text. It's a painful text, as all of Amos is. But it's also a hopeful text, as not much of Amos is. So in this text, we have both in this third message of Amos. You'll notice, if you listen real carefully, you'll notice that chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, sound vaguely familiar to each other. You'll also notice that 4 through 6 sound vaguely familiar with verses 14 and 15. You'll also notice that verse, verses 6 and 7 sound vaguely familiar with... Um, I'm sorry... Verses, verses um, yeah, 4 and 5 sound actually vaguely familiar with verses 14 and 15. And then you'll, no, uh, you'll notice, I said it wrong, 4 through 7, I'm sorry, 4, four through 6. 7 sounds vaguely familiar, I said that wrong, so 1 through 3, 16 and 17, 4 and, uh, through 6 sound vaguely familiar to verses... Um, 14 and 15, verse 7 sounds vaguely familiar with verses 10 through 12, and then verse 8 and 9 stand on their own. I want to point that out. That's the chiastic structure. You have, if I can describe it this way, you have the, end, the beginning and the end match, the middle and middle match. Closer middle middle match, and then the very middle by itself. The point of that structure is very important. It's incredibly important in Hebrew poetry. Hope you all get that. If you don't, I'll explain it to you afterwards. The point of it is that as he develops this whole argument, and we'll see it, is he's going the whole point of it is to focus everything right to the middle middle section. That's the key. 
The middle, middle section is the key. If you're not careful, we will look at the beginning and the end of the section and hear the, the condemnation. That's the beginning and end. Correct? The beginning section, the end section is the condemnations. If we're not careful, we'll hear that and we'll think that's the ultimate conclusion. It is not. It's there. It's important. It's the color. It's the reason. But it's not ultimately the issue. If we're not careful, and we're going to develop these more in a second, if we're not careful, we'll look at verses 4 um, through 6 and see the, if I put, the, put it this way, because that's what it is, the call to repentance... And we'll connect that to verse 14 and 15, another call to repentance. You see the connection? And we'll say that's the key. The call to repentance certainly is the key then, Steve, right? We got the condemnation and then the call to repentance. That's certainly the key, isn't it? No, it's not. That's not the key. Is calls to repentance important? Of course they are not the key. Well, verse 7 and verses 10 through 12 certainly then are the key, right? What is 7 and verses 10 through 13? Well, 7 and, and 10 through 13 are the reasons why there's a need to call for repentance. It's the actual accusations which is why there's actual condemnations at the beginning and end of the chapter. So certainly the reasons for the call to repentance are the reason then, right? That's the key thing, right, Steve? The answer is no. Are they important? Yes. But that's not the reason. I'm telling you the story right now, the whole point of the whole text right off the bat. Verse 8 and 9 is the central feature of the, of the chapter, of the, of the message. Yeah, which is very strange to us because the way we communicate today is how? Like if I'm preaching, I start my points out and then more points and then more points and then more points and then I bring it to a climax, correct? And I present the call, boom! And then we come off of it with a conclusion and we go to singing songs. What Amos does, and happens very often in Hebrew poetry, is you bring it right up to the point, and then you come right back down again as a reminder. So it's in the middle, not at the end. If we don't see that, we miss the whole point, and we, and we miss the point of the text, and we walk away clueless. Well, now that I've pointed out how this, the, the whole thing breaks down, we're going to do our typical American thing, and we're going to walk it verse by verse. But we're going to come to the emphasis and emphasize the emphasis for what it really is. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, Amos says this, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, house, O house of Israel. So right off the bat, in verse 1, Amos speaks to Israel and he says, I need you to listen. I need you to hear something important. Something hugely important. This thing that I'm about to tell you, 
Notice how he describes it. Hear this word that I take up over you. Which is an interesting phrase, isn't it? I take up over you. What that means, Amos is saying, I am bringing a word of authority to you. I'm taking this up over you. That is, it, it overrides you. It's authoritative over you. It needs to be heard. It's, it's more important than how you think. It's more crucial than what you see. It's more central and necessary than anything you are experiencing. Why is that? What's going on in Israel this time? They're worshiping idols, but remember in our introduction, that's true, Jim, but remember in our introduction, what is the conditions of Israel at this point in time? Anybody at all? It's good. Life is good. They've expanded their, their, their borders as far as they've ever done it. They're at peace, prosperity, free travel. They are at their zenith. And actually they were. They never got any better than this point. They're at their zenith. When, when Amos says to the people, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, I am coming to you at the zenith of your experience. At the pinnacle of your experience. Life is good for you, it seems like. And he's saying, I take this word over all that to you. In other words, this is the blanket that goes over all of what you see, hear, feel, experience. It's all a facade. That's what he's saying. What you see, hear, feel, experience, meaningless. This word is all that means anything, is what Amos is saying right off the bat in verse 1. Crucial that Amos gets us across because everything in their life screams out life is good. Life is good. It's one thing for a prophet to come to you when, when, when everything's miserable, isn't it? And he comes to you and he says, I have a word from the Lord. God's doing all this bad stuff. Oh, that makes sense. <sighs> right? But it's a whole different animal when life is good and, and the prophet of God comes and says... Dude, everything you're experiencing, nothing. I have a word from God, and it's going to totally stand contrary to all of that. All of that. In the midst of the good times, in the midst of the beauty and amazement and wonder and, and comfort and ease and prosperity, Amos says, I bring this word in lamentation. Mourning. Lamentation in the scriptures oftentimes is personal, but it regularly is corporate as well. Lamentation almost inevitably is connected to funerals. What Amos is saying is, I'm bringing you a funeral song. I'm bringing you, I'm taking up over you the song of, in your best of times, I'm singing the lament. That's, by the way, why it's in poetry. I'm singing your lament. And we'll discover very quickly why. Verse 2. Fallen, no more to rise. 
is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. Interesting choice of words that the prophet chooses here. He says, fallen to rise no more, which is really bizarre when you think about it. They're setting again because it's a prosperous time. It's a comfortable time. It's a neat time of ease and, 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 and everything's going well. And the prophet starts off by saying, Israel, in effect, Israel is fallen. Makes no sense. It doesn't match anything they see. Israel is fallen. Fallen no more to rise. But what is he referencing? Well, the very next line is the what? Is the what? Is the virgin Israel. Interesting, again, choice of words. Is the virgin Israel. Why does he say, is the virgin Israel? Well, a virgin, obviously, is someone who's never had sexual intercourse, Correct. That's a virgin. Who is Israel betrothed to? The Lord. Israel is betrothed to the Lord. To be a perfect virgin to the Lord. What has Israel done? God's, God's covenant people. Well, what has Israel done? The point of it is that they have prostituted themselves. They are to be the virgin of the Lord. They are to be the bride. They are betrothed to the God who rescued them from slavery. Rescued them from Egypt. Gave them a covenant of life and peace. And said that he'll be their God. He guided them and led them. Cared for them. Nurtured them protected them, sheltered them, provided for them. And what did they do? They prostituted themselves. They gave away their virginity. How'd they prostitute themselves? They gave, they gave themselves away to other idols, other gods. They pursued other gods. Which is why verse 2 opens up to say, Fallen to rise no more. Did I just ask a simple question? You don't even need to answer it. When a virgin loses her virginity, can she get it back? No. No. Virginity will never rise again. Now, he's not talking physical. He's talking spiritual, of course. And the description, as it goes on in verse 2, Fallen to no more to rise as a virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up, is an interesting turn of words. As he describes this virgin, his virgin, his betrothed. What does he say? She gave herself away. She prostituted herself. She gave herself away. And the end result is what? Forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. 
what a, what a stunning picture, a stunningly horrific picture. She gave herself away to other gods, other idols. She said, I love this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. And then when push came to shove, what happened? Well, what happens to someone who gives themselves away in prostitution? After a little bit, what happens to them? What? They lose their identity, and then after a little bit, what happens? It's very simple. Nobody wants them anymore. That's what happens, right? What happens to the prostitute? Well, she gets used up. She gets old. That's what happens. Nobody wants her anymore. And so what happens? She's forsaken in her land because she was just used. All she was was used. And now she's forsaken because there's no more use for her. And what does he conclude in verse 2? With none to raise her up. She gave her heart away to all these things. But the end, those things, those ones she gave herself to, would do nothing and could do nothing to help her. Could do nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, before we move on off of verse 2, this is the condemnation, obviously. It's very important that we don't miss the point. It's very easy to forget several things. Number one, God's talking about His covenant people. He's not talking about pagans. He's talking about His covenant people, Israel. Crucial. Number two, He's talking about Israel giving herself away to other, prostituting herself to other idols, other gods. Crucial. Because this folds into today. This is the beginning challenge in the condemnation that God has for Israel into us and the church in general at large today. Are we God's covenant people? Yeah. Yes, we are. Do God's covenant people today prostitute themselves? The answer is, yes, we do. We give our hearts away. That's what prostitution looks like spiritually in the scriptures. We give our hearts away to other gods. We don't want to call it that. But we do it. We don't have idols. We've gotten better than that. Although we really do. But we give our hearts away just like Israel does. Therefore, the condemnation that's resonating here is crucial that we hear today. God is long-suffering, isn't he? Isn't he? I mean, here we are about 700-something A.D. And they've been prostituting themselves for 700-plus years. God's kind of long-suffering, isn't he? And what, what, what did Israel do? They presumed upon it. And they continued to prostitute themselves. What does the church do too often? We continue to presume ourselves upon God's long-suffering nature. 
and we continue to pr prostitute ourselves, and we miss the point. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel. Forsaken on her land, none to reach her up. What is he saying to Israel? He's saying to Israel, there's none to raise you up. There will be no raising up. Israel's done. The ten northern tribes, done as a nation. Your gods can't help you, and I, who can, won't. That's what we've seen up in the first four chapters, haven't we? And I, who can, won't. You are my betrothed, and you chose others. Which brings us to verse 3. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. I think there may very well be two different understandings to this text, both of them being correct. So let me give them both to you. The picture here, firstly, and the most important and closest picture is this. The picture is one of a city or a country at war. And they send out their warriors to fight. In this case, the city sends out a thousand, and after the battle is over, how many come back? A hundred. And, and another city sends out a hundred, and has how many come back? Ten. Ten. I'm not good at math, but I believe I could be wrong on this. I think it's ten percent. Ten percent return, which means that ninety percent what? Perish, die, are gone. Or maybe they go into captivity. Probably both. An army that loses 90% Problems of the is not a functioning army. Does that make sense? It's no longer a functioning army. That's what he's saying is about to happen. The city that went out with a thousand shall have a hundred left. A city that went out with a hundred, she'll have ten left in the house of Israel. Fallen, go back to verse two, fallen, no more to rise. That's probably the literal meaning here. Most people are going to be wiped out. But I think there's a second understanding here because we do have this group of people returning. Don't we? A hundred in one city, ten in another city. Most likely what Amos is pointing out because of the context of what we're going to see in just a little bit, is that there are going to be some that return. Who are the people who return? A small remnant. There will be a small remnant. So we do have a glimmer right at the beginning of hope. But here we have this idea in verse 3 in this condemnation that there is going to be mass destruction. God will not sit on the sideline idle forever. The destruction will come, the judgment will come to his people, to his covenant people. Oh, a faithful remnant will survive. A remnant will. And how many? And by the way, could I just say this? In all the discussions of remnant in the scriptures, it is interesting, this is the largest description of remnant there is, 10%. It is the largest, by far. Most discussions of remnant are a lot smaller than that. Which is 
really scary. goes on into verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel. And here we see the call to repentance. But I would submit to you that this call to repentance is not because there's an expectation of corporate repentance. There isn't. There is no expectation. It's been pretty clear in four chapters of Amos that there is no expectation of corporate repentance. He's done with them. Corporately, they're done. This is a personal remnant call. That's all it is. A personal remnant call. And the remnant call, starting in verse 4, is, Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal. Or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall certainly go into exile. And Bethel shall come to nothing. So the call to the remnant. What remnant? The ten or a hundred. The call to the little teeny remnant is what? Seek me and live. It is a call to repentance. The idea here is you haven't sought me. You haven't been seeking me. Israel, all across the board, not seeking me. It's very clear in the history of Israel. Not seeking me. As a matter of fact, seeking everything but me. Prostituting themselves. Verse 2. Seek me and live. And the idea is in the text in verse 4 is this. Please don't miss the point. When he says here, seek me and live, what God is through Amos saying, more specifically, is seek me and continue to seek me. That sound familiar to anything else? What's that? Believe and continue to believe. Or if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. That's what, I, that's what Amos is crying out to the remnant when he says, Seek me and live. He is saying, Seek me and continue to seek me and continue to seek me with all your heart. And the point is, <coughs> if you're seeking me with all your heart, Amos says, you will not be what? Verse... You will not be prostituting yourself. You will remain a virgin. And by the way, this is the most beautiful thing. Combine four with two. What did I say in the very beginning? Once you've lost your virginity, what? You can't get it back. You know what he's just saying? I can do something you can never do. That's what he's saying. I can do something you could never do. I can give you back your virginity. Spiritually speaking, seek me and live. The living is absolutely contrasted to verse 2. Fallen to rise, no, no more to rise, forsaken on our land, none to raise her up. Seek me. What he's saying is this. Seek me. Ready? And be raised up. Did you pick it? 
You get it? Raised up means what? Restored. Restored. It actually is a picture of being brought back to life. See, verse 2 ultimately is talking about no more to rise. It's talking about dead, even. And so far, he's, she's dead. He's saying, seek me and live. Be raised up. But seek me exclusively. You see, we in the church today are just like Israel. We actually think we can seek God and seek other things too. You realize that? And we do it all the time. We think we can seek God and seek other things. We think we can pursue God and pursue other gods too. We would never call them gods, conveniently enough. They are. We call them other things. We make excuses for them. We clean them up, we dress them up, we put makeup on them. Make them look really pretty. But when he says here, seek God and live, he's talking about seeking God exclusively. How do I know that? And continually. How do I know that? Well, the words used are continually, but exclusively is very clear in the text. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. We're going to get back to that in a second. And do not enter into Gilgal or cross over into Beersheba. What's he talking about? Do, well, he starts out by saying what? He puts a con contrast, right? Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. What does Bethel mean? House of God. House of God. He says, do not seek house of God. What? It's a city. It's a literal city. It's a city that there was supposed to be significant, really significant worship of God, which is why it's called Bethel. Beth means house. El is short for Elohim, house of God. You'll notice at the end of verse 5, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. You see that? Interesting. This is one of those plays on words. Bethel means house of God. Bethel. In the Hebrew, it actually says, and Bethel, Bethaven. That's all it says. Bethel, Bethaven. What does that mean? Bethel, house of God. Bethaven, house of nothing. House of futility. House of emptiness. House of uselessness. House of condemnation. What has happened in Bethel? All sorts of idolatry has been taking place in Bethel. God says, in the place that you should be worshiping me, don't go there. Don't go there. Seek me and live. Don't go to Bethel. Because Bethel is going to become Beth-Avon. Bethel will become Beth-nothing. House of nothing. Why would you go to the house of nothing? Why does God do this in this, in this word play? 
Because what he's trying to get across to the children of Israel, the remnant of the children of Israel is this. All the other things you pursue and all the other things I pursue, all the other places I worship and all the other places you worship are Beth Avon. They're houses of nothing. We spend our puny, miserable, tiny, insignificant life that is but a vapor. If we're not careful, we end up pursuing Beth Avon. And we say, oh, this or that. If only, if only, if only. I got to have, I got to have, I got to experience, I got to know, I got to do this, I got to do that. No. What does he say? Seek me and live. The only thing you and I need, the only thing Israel needed is God. Now, some would say that's pretty simplistic, isn't it? No. No. <coughs> is it? Is it simplistic? Is that not matching up with life? Really? Philippians chapter 4. <coughs> Starting at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Where is Paul at this point? He's in prison. What does he have? Nothing. Except for a beaten body and chains. Not that I am speaking in need, of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is, I can glorify him in the midst of all that he brings into my life. It sounds kind of simple, doesn't it? Simplistic? Says the guy who has nothing and is content. And we find ourselves forever saying what? If only I just want, this will make me happy, this will make me satisfied. And all we're doing is prostituting ourselves. That's all we're doing. God says, seek me. It's exclusive. Seek me and what? Live. But do not seek Bethel. Because it's going to amount to nothing. It's going to amount to absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, that's an understatement. It's going to be worse than nothing. Because it will be part of the condemnation. Why would you seek things that condemn you? Because we lie to ourselves and think that they actually have value when they don't. It goes back to Romans 11.36 again, doesn't it? All things are from him, through him, to him. To him be glory forever, amen. If we don't see them as from him, through him, to him, they're idols. 
by nature, by definition. They're Bethel, which ultimately is just Bethaven, house of nothing. And then he goes on and says, don't enter into Gogal, which is shocking. What's Gilgal? Gilgal is the place, one of the places where they primarily entered into the promised land. It was their beginning entrance into the promised land, the land of blessing, the land of promise. The land that said, we are God's covenant people. He says to them, don't go there. If you're seeking me, <clears throat> don't go there. Why? Because it is there that the idolatry is going on again. Don't go there. You won't find me there. Instead, if you go to Gilgal, what are you going to find? It tells us what, what they're going to find. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile. What does that mean? He's saying Gilgal is the place where Israelites will exit the promised land. They entered the promised land there. <clears throat> By God's design, they're going to exit the promised land there as they go into exile. Because the place that's supposed to be the memorial... The place that is supposed to be the memorial to remind the people of God's blessing and love and faithfulness and covenant loyalty is the place that has become a place of worship of other gods. And so he says then, don't go there. It's going to be a place of exit of the promised land, which means it's going to be a place of exit of blessing. It's going to be the exit point, the demarcation point from the land of God's blessing and the blessing of God. And then he says, do not cross over to Beersheba or Beersheba, which again was a very significant place in the southernmost part of Israel that had also had, had all sorts of significance for God. And the people again had made it a place of idolatry. And then verse 6, he continues on by saying, as he said right at the beginning of verse 5, at the end of verse 4, going into verse 5, seek the Lord and live. So, don't miss the point of Hebrew poetry. When he repeats himself, it's very important. Seek the Lord and live. <clears throat> and then he warns them in verse 6, lest he break out like fire in the house of jo Joseph and devour with none to quench it for Bethel. In the midst of this call to repentance, seek the Lord and live. If you don't, the warning is clear. If you don't seek the Lord and live, fire's coming. And there'll be no one to stop it, no one to quench it. It's an unquenchable fire. And there's no question in my mind that that's an allusion to something else called hell. It's not just the Assyrian captivity. Verse 7 then, <clears throat> he says, we're going to come back to 5 and 6 in just a second. In verse 7, he says, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So now he's turning from the call to repentance in verse 7, and he's pointing out the specifics of their failure. 
the specifics of their sin outside of the idolatry. This is the fleshing out of the idolatry, of course. He says, O you who turn justice into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. It's an interesting perspective. When he says you turn justice to wormwood, wormwood is a small plant in the Middle East, small tree, as it were, shrubbery kind of tree, that is a really useless piece of wood. Smells horrible. It's got all sorts of toxins in it. There's nothing good, no redemptive qualities to it. Ken, it's not something you'd ever build with. In fact, it's not something you'd ever do anything with. So when he says here, you turn justice to wormwood, the picture is what Israel is doing is where they should be standing for justice because God is a God of justice. If we agree with God, we should be, and if we're fellowship with God, if we're seeking God and live, we should be after the same thing he's after, correct? Quite to the contrary, the people of Israel are what? They are taking justice and they're turning it into wormwood, poison, worthlessness, uselessness in the, in the context of, of Amos. What are they doing? Well, the poor, the most poor among them are being mistreated, overtaxed, over overcharged uh, with crimes that they didn't really commit and they have no recourse. <coughs> it's a nightmare situation. And when he says, and cast down righteousness to the earth, the picture is of one of saying, righteousness isn't all it's cut out to be. And so it's kind of something that just gets cast away. It's, in other words, righteousness is not something that is to be held of utmost value. Kind of like litter. Just like litter. Served a purpose at times, right? But paper serves a purpose. The paper wrapping the, the quarter pounder serves a purpose, right? Helps you to hold on to it without getting ketchup and mustard and mayonnaise and everything else down your arms, right? Okay, that works. But when we're done with it, then, yeah, we don't need it anymore. And so we do what? We cast it down onto the earth. Make sense? <clears throat> That's the picture Amos is saying. Oh, you who turn justice into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Now, before we get off of that in this, in this statement of the actual reason for the condemnation and the actual reason for the need to repent, we must not miss the point. It's very easy to read this and say, well, I've not turned justice into wormwood. I believe in justice. I absolutely believe in justice. Now, I don't throw righteousness down to the earth. Can I just submit to you, even if our situation is different and most likely is from theirs, certainly context-specific, what they're doing to poor people, we may not be, may, may not. The point still remains, whether we're doing the actual things they're doing or not, the point still remains, this is the point. Is what is supremely important to us God's justice and all the rest that comes along with that is holiness and all the rest. And is what is of supremely important to us, of supreme important to, importance to us, is righteousness, holiness, glorifying God, loving God, fellowship with God, magnifying Christ, enjoying Christ, drinking deeply at the well eating of the bread of life 
and all the rest of the biblical illustrations. If the answer is no, that's not front and center, you're casting righteousness to the earth, and so am I. That's the point. You and I, if justice and righteousness in whatever form is not held in highest esteem because that's who God is, the point of the text is quite clear. If we are not upholding a highest esteem, highest value, the things, and if we can make it more general, the things that sum up the attributes of the one who says he loves us. You know what it means? It means we're prostitutes. It means that we're hanging out in Bethel, which is really Bethaven. It means we're hanging out in Gilgal. It means we're hanging out in Beersheba. And we're worshiping elsewhere. They're not seeking God. So what's the point of this whole first section? <clears throat> it's driving to the point of verses 8 and 9. See, again, it's really easy to hear the condemnation say, oh, I'm condemned. Because you know what? We're just like them. It's very easy to hear <clears throat> three and four. I'm sorry. Uh, um, five and six and say, I need to repent. Very easy to hear the words and say, I repent. How many of us have done that? Over and over and over and over again. Haven't <clears throat> we? It's very easy to hear verse seven and say, yeah, the attributes of God, who God really is, 99.9% of the time in my life it doesn't even show up on my radar screen. But unless we hear verses 8 and 9, it won't make a bit of difference. Verses 8 and 9, the story of the text. He who made Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the sky into night, who calls the water of the sea and pours them onto the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. James is driving towards here. Well, Pleiades and Orion, of course, are two constellations. <clears throat> Orion is the constellation that starts rising in the, on the horizon to introduce us to winter, cold. Pleiades starts showing up on the horizon in the springtime. Start reminding us of warm. Cold and warm. Darkens the day into night. Talking about the change of the, sea, of the days. Night into day. Floods. Rain. End of verse 8. The Lord is his name. 
Verse 9, destruction then. Bad stuff, destruction. So that nobody can stand upon it against it. What's he talking about? Why has he introduced this right in the middle of this whole thing? And why is this the central point? Because the, the problem, here's, here's the issue. The problem is not the condemnation. The problem is not the need to repent. The problem is not the actual specifics of the sins. The problem is the people don't know God. That's the point. Why do we sin? Because we don't know God. Why isn't righteousness important to us? Because we don't know God. Why isn't justice important to us? Because we don't know God. Why do we need to keep on repenting? Because we don't know God. The point of Amos is, after saying twice, seek me and live, in the end of verse 8, he says what? What's the very end of verse 8? What does it say? The Lord is his name. Seek God and live. And by the way, he's saying to him, you've forgotten me. How can you even seek me? How can you possibly repent? How can you possibly seek me? You don't even know who I am. That's what Amos is arguing. The point of Amos chapter 5 verses 1 through 17 is this. It, Amos is asking or making a statement but trying to prompt in the hearer's mind, the reader's mind, a huge, gigantic question. And it's a question that changes everything. Who is God? That's the question. Seek me and live. You know what? The thing that makes all the difference is this. God tells us who he is. He shows us who he is. We aren't allowed to make up our own image of God. That's what's going on in Bethel. That's what's going on in Gilgal. That's what's going on in Beersheba. That's what's going on. They're making up gods. Not allowed. Seek me and live. And continue to seek me and live. And in order to seek me and live, you've got to know who I am. And the only way you know who I am is because I have revealed myself to you, says the Lord. Can I just submit to you something? Great test here in Amos chapter 5. A great test. <clears throat> do you know God? I'm not talking about the Sunday school answer. Do you know God? Yeah, I know God. I'm not talking about, yes, I've asked Jesus to be my Savior. That's not what Amos is talking about. Amos is saying, seek me, continue to seek me, and seek me exclusively. And the only way you can is by hearing and reading and listening to and remembering all that I revealed about myself. Period. That's why, by the way, in Deuteronomy, 
What did God do through Moses? Starting in Deuteronomy chapter 1, what did God do? Starting in chapter 1, before he ever gave any commands, for five chapters, God did something amazing. He revealed himself. For five chapters, he said, Israelites, this is who I am. This is who I am. These are my attributes. This is what I accomplish. This is who I am. And after five chapters of him revealing himself, what's the next thing he says? Anybody know? Right after five chapters of revealing himself, the very next thing he says is, You shall love the Lord your God. Along with all the other gods. So he says? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that makes up you, love the Lord your God. And then he says, and in loving him, you should what? Teach your children. Your children what? Who God is. Can I just, this is a freebie. It's one of the things that torques me off more than anything else in American Christianity. How seldom fathers teach their children about God. How seldom fathers systematically carefully, ongoing, are crying out for their, for their children to seek God and live. I'm like, kids don't want to listen to it. I don't really care. He didn't say he just talked to them about it if they listen. You know why fathers don't do that? You know why fathers are not diligently teaching their children who God is? Because they don't love God. Because they did, they would. If that offends you, I really don't care. That's the point. God is not saying, seek me and live when it's convenient. Because frankly, if the people in Israel's day would seek God and live, everybody would hate them. Because everybody else isn't seeking God and living. Everybody else is hating them. They're going to Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. They're not seeking God. They don't know God. They're playing the religious games. They're dinking around around the fringes. They're Hebrews sixing it. They're tasting it. They're tasting of the good things. They're not seeking and living. They don't know God. What is God saying through Amos here? Well, he's focusing on some really important things. He doesn't cover the entirety of who he is here, obviously. But if he made Pleiades and, and Orion, what does that mean? It means it all. Okay, he's talking about his power. His sovereignty, right? His authority. 
speaks it into existence. He's the one who controls when the sun rises and the sun sets. You get that? He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. When there's floods, I was driving today looking at the Schuylkill. It's not flooding, but it's high and brown. As I'm driving, I'm thinking, you know, that's his doing. It's God who spoke the rain into existence this morning. He's the one who caused the rain. And what do we do? By the way, when it rains, we complain about it. Interesting, isn't it? I find that really intriguing. It snows and we complain about it. God spoke that in. Interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Now, some may laugh about that, but maybe that's a little evidence that we're not, what? Seeking God and living. We're not recognizing that these two are from the Lord. We see the sunrise and all its beauty or the sunset and all its beauty. We're like, wow, isn't that amazing? And God's nowhere on the radar screen. Are we not worshiping nature? Aren't we? The stock market goes to the roof. We're like, yeah! Are we not worshiping wealth? We get a good report. Maybe we had cancer and then we get a good report that we're cured or, or it's cleared, it's gone, and we're dancing in the streets. But when we got the report that we had cancer, we're not recognizing it is also from God and for His glory. And, and you say, well, cancer too, Steve? Well, look, verse 9, destruction. Cancer's kind of destructive, isn't it? Right? We can continue on into 10 and following, but what he does in 10 and following is he, he, he repeats verses 1 through 8. 1 through 7, I'm sorry. There's a couple, just a couple things I want to point out, and you can, you can work through the rest of the things yourself. Let me read it, and I'll just stop on a few things. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Verse 10 is speaking about who do you think? The prophets. Exactly. Speaking about the prophets. They're rejecting the truth. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy about the last days with regard to the church? They will not tolerate sound doctrine. Interesting, isn't it? Therefore, because you tramp on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him, and the idea is they're ripping off the poor, and going on in verse 11, they're building houses of huge stones. He promised them, you will what? Not live in them. Judgment's coming. You planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Judgment's coming. And he goes on and continues to talk about that. Um, and then verse 13 is intriguing. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. For it's an evil time. Kind of catches you by surprise, doesn't it? Amos is speaking. And he's telling other people, yeah, you know what? A prudent person can keep quiet during this time. What do you think that means? Can I tell you what it means? It means your primary focus and my primary focus 
is not to be proclaiming as Amos is, but it instead is to what? Seek God and live. It is to learn of God. Because see, there's nobody. Amos is it. There's nobody. The call to repentance is focused on those ten and those hundred that have returned. There's nobody that's faithful in Israel. There's nobody. So if you're just starting to repent, if you're just starting to learn, the time is to be quiet and what? Learn of Him. Fellowship with Him. Oh, trust me. As we do, what's going to happen? We're going to speak because what did we see two weeks ago? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? It's going to happen. But right now, you're finding yourself repenting. You find yourself realizing you're an idolater. You find yourself not seeking God and living, and not seeking Him exclusively, but playing games, seeking Him plus. The time is to repent. The time is to seek. The time is to learn. The time is to fellowship. And you know what? God's going to work through that. But right now, that's the time. So then he goes back to the call to repentance. Verse 14, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord of hosts, the God of hosts, will what? Be with you. What did we say about the Lord of hosts? What does that mean? The God of armies. And almost inevitably, it is opposing you. But here he says something radically different, doesn't he? He says, if we are seeking him, learning of him, fellowshipping with him... Something dramatic changes. The Lord, the God of hosts, will fight for you. What a change. Hate evil, verse 15. Hate evil and love good. And establish justice in the gate. It may, that it, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious. And here we are introduced to the idea of remnant. Seek God and live. Hate evil and do good, responding to the truth of who God is. Establish justice. If nobody else is going to be just, you be just. Is the idea. It may be, just maybe, just maybe, in this late state, in this late time, it just may be that the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to a remnant. Scary statement, isn't it? Just may be. He, he may yet, this late date, be gracious to us. Seeking him live. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. It's interesting, he mentions the covenant name for God twice. Interestingly enough. In all the squares, there should be wailing. So, what do we find out? In 16 and 17, we find out that there's not going to be any mass repentance. There's not going to be any mass seeking. There's not going to be any mass learning of God, fellowship with God, rejection of idolatry. It's not going to be friends. It's only going to be perhaps that faithful remnant. What do we find instead? In all the squares, there will be, there shall be wailing. And the streets, they shall say, alas, alas. And by the way, alas doesn't mean much to us. But it's a term of death. Interestingly enough, it says they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing 
those who are skilled in lamentation. In the ancient Near East, they had people who that was their job to lament, to go to funerals and sing the funeral dirges. But the point is in Amos chapter 5 here, in 16 and 17, there's not enough professional lamenters anymore. The death is everywhere. The destruction is everywhere. There's not even enough lamenters. And so the farmers who are trying desperately hard, the poor farmers who have been abused, are being called to the cities. To do what? To fill in for the lack of lamenters. That's how much wailing there is. How much death. Verse 17, and in all the vineyards I should be wailing, for I will pass through your midst. He says, in the end of verse 17, and in all vineyards, by the way, it's an interesting contrast. In vineyards, that's where in the ancient Near East, in the vineyards is where the biggest celebrations outside of at the temple itself would take place. Because when the vineyards yielded, it was the easiest and clearest symbol that God was blessing. When the, vi- when the vineyards would yield heavily, in the vineyards where wine was made, all that is there is willing. Because the pestilence has come. And everything else along with it. And then he wraps up verse 17, this third message, by saying this, and I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Does that statement sound familiar to you? What? What about specifically the Exodus? The Passover. Go back to the Passover. God said to the Israelites, if you would do what? Blood on the doorpost and lintel, I will do what? I will pass over you. But to the Egyptians, I will pass Here he says to the Israelites, I will pass through you. He's covenant people. You get the point? Amos is driving a really important point home. Our God is not to be mocked. Our God is not to be trivialized. Our God is not to be ignored or treated casually. Our God is holy and righteous and just. And although he is long-suffering, he is calling us. Just like he called the children of Israel. But at the same time, as he said to Amos, there will only be a remnant. In this case, ten out of a hundred, a hundred out of a thousand of his covenant people. The scriptures are clear, Old Testament and New Testament. He will only preserve a remnant. Seek God and live. Learn, God. Drink deeply at the well, at the spring of the new water. Why would you dig cisterns, to quote Jeremiah, that can hold no water? What are those cisterns that can hold no water? They're Beth Avon. That's what they are. House of nothing. Why would we possibly think that they could be good for us? They are Beth Avon. And off on the horizon is the fountain of living water. 
Or as God said to Israel, is there no balm in Gilead right next door and I salve that could solve all your problems? Is there no balm in Gilead? It's so close. And yet you go here and here and here and here. Come to Gilead, he said at that point. Now it's so bad he can't even send to Gilead. Because we're caught up in the cisterns. Let us in repentance learn of God. And seek God in life. He is a merciful God. And perhaps, perhaps, by his graciousness and mercy, he will save a remnant. Oh, but let us not be self-deceived into thinking that I can possibly not seek God and yet still live. And this is not talking about what we classically call justification. These are covenant people. Firmly convinced that when God's people are truly saved people, they seek God and live. Let us seek Him. Amen? He is a merciful God. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We have for too long, for too long, found ourselves going to Bethel. At the same time, we say we're seeking you. We've found ourselves for too long seeking you and trying to live while at the same time holding on to Gilgal. For too long, we have been seeking you and thinking we'll live when we're also hanging out in Beersheba. For too long, we've been seeking you and digging cisterns. For too long... We have seen some things from you, through you, to you, to you get some glory. But we have fallen into the same trap the Israelites have fallen into too often. Help us. Open our eyes to see. Help us to know you. Help us to be reminded again and again that you did not primarily call us to do, to act, to speak anything like that you called us to know you help us to remember that all that flows from that help us to remember that in that day you will tell many people that you didn't know them and certainly if you don't know them they don't know you help us not to be the church at the end days that is absolutely deceived. Help us to know you. Glorify yourself in that pursuit. In your name I pray. Amen.